Well, good morning. My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm part of the teaching team, and I get to bring the word this morning. Um, how many of you had to brave some serious weather to get here this morning? Anybody? I've been seeing on the news, it's kind of crazy, you know, like people throwing cups of water in the air, and it like freezes into a block of ice before it hits the ground, and all the East Coasty stuff. And one of my, one of my good friends, longtime friend, name is John, he lives in um, Chicago, and I was actually uh, talking trash to him because he was talking about how cold it was, and I made sure to send him a picture of myself sitting in my backyard um, the day after Christmas in my shorts with my shoes off, feet in the sun, reading a book, with my dog running around saying, you know, pray for us, it's almost 74. You know, like it's, <laughs> it's getting cold, I might have to put socks on. You know, um, if you can, you know, my wife is, won't let me turn the fan on high, you know, like it's, but I was sitting out there and one of the things that was fun is I was sitting out there with my dog, um, you know, it's a very masculine dog, it's called a Yorkie Poo, um, I don't know if you've, it's, it's, it weighs seven and a half pounds and it's a killer, it growls a lot and it's really terrifying, you, you have a hard time not being scared of this dog when it growls, um, but I was sitting out there and it was like there's tree, there's oranges falling off the tree and this dog's you know, barking at the oranges and growling at the oranges, which is funny because it can't chew through an orange rind if it wanted to. Like, it's, it's so little. And so this dog's growling and barking and it, it, looking at the way that it uh, treats those oranges that fall, it's, it's not really trying to threaten them. It's just kind of a way that it plays and that, that growling thing that's going on. And one of the things I noticed in this passage here in um, Psalm 1, um, watching my dog play, um, is this word meditate day and night. On his law, he meditates day and night. That word meditate actually appears in the book of Isaiah, talking about the way that a lion meditates over its uh, food or growls over its food, but that kind of repetitious uh, sound. It's like the same sound happening a lot of times again and again and again, in how that word doesn't necessarily mean like this really intense thing, but it can be kind of a playful, leisurely situation where you're kind of just, it's, there's a lightheartedness, a leisureliness to it, a meditation over it. And um, it's just kind of cool how even just in sitting outside my backyard taunting my friend who lives in Chicago, um, how, you know, noticing my dog playing, the spirit encourages me and reminds me of this psalm, this meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. And what we're going to kind of see here in this passage is what does it look like to be a person who meditates on the law of the Lord rather than someone who meditates on something else? Because a lot of times we can think about meditation in like an Eastern, like yoga sense, like meditation's emptying the mind. Rather, in a biblical sense, meditation's actually filling the mind. It's not thinking less, but it's actually thinking differently. And what, what one of the realities I want us to look at is that all of us meditate, that is, we have our mind going at all times over all types of different things. And actually, what we meditate on, what we think on, whether it's the, the, the nourishment that the culture gives us or it's the nourishment in God's word, the way that we meditate and what we find ourselves thinking on constantly actually dramatically affects the type of person we become over time. One of the things I've been really thinking through and praying through recently the last um, couple of weeks is how come when some people age, they become sweeter and more kind and more gentle and more life-giving and there's like a softness and an openness and a concern for others. Whereas other people, when they age, there's this bitterness, an entitlement, a closedness. It seems like everything becomes more frustrating. And I don't mean just people who are like 120. I mean people who are like 40 or people who are like 70. But like there's this reality that if we're grapes as people, some of us age like wine 
and some of us age like raisins. <laughs> you know, sweeter and more expensive and more valuable and more fun to be with versus like, yeah, I guess it's healthy and whatever, but there's, there's like a negativity there. Or even like in this passage, what you see is there's two plants, there's two types of plants. There's the plant that grows like a tree and there's the plant that's like this chaff that gets tossed about by the wind. Seemingly similar, but one of them is like rooted and solid and has leaves and bears fruit. One of them has aged like this nice wine, but the other one is just kind of blown about and it's thin. One's a thick person, one's a thin person. And I don't mean in terms of their waist, I mean in terms of their soul. How can I, what does it mean to grow into a person who ages well? When I think about my life, what's it gonna take for me to be a person who, as I grow, I mature and sweeten, not turn inward raisin and become bitter? What's it gonna take for me to be these two different types of people? And I think that this is what this passage really gets at and what we're gonna see when we look into this passage here in a second. So let me pray for us and we're gonna talk about some things, but let's pray. God, I believe every person in this room wants to mature and not just age. We want to not just get old, but to become elders. We want to um, age like wine and not just raisins. God, I pray that we can become attuned to and aware of the ways in which um, voices around us are um, calling out to us and are competing for us. And I pray that your spirit will speak through me and through your word this morning to help us um, make 2018 a year in which we um, mature. Amen. Amen. So just to begin, I want to kind of begin, when we talk about growing older, we talk about maturing, we talk about spiritual formation and development, I want to kind of begin with like kind of like some assumptions that I have before we jump in of what it means to be human and what it means to be a person made in God's image. So in 1 John 4, it says that God is love. And to really recognize what that means, that how God can be in his essence love, we need to recognize that God is Trinity, that he is three persons in one God, that love requires another, love requires an object, love requires something outside of yourself in order for there to be love. I cannot be loving by myself, I need someone else. And so when I talk about God being love, that's referencing the fact that God is a Trinity, that in and of himself, He's not just loving, but he is love. He is this perfect, warm, relating person who is three persons in one God. And so the fact that we are made in the image of that God is significant. That to be in the image of God, when God says, let us make them in our image, there's something about that that has to do with we are to be these loving, relating people from the very beginning that any vision of what it means to be a person, to grow, to flourish, to thrive, that doesn't have to do with being loved, that it doesn't have to do with relationships is devoid of what it means to be human. Similarly, in the very beginning, we have this fact that God makes humanity out of dust and spirit, that he takes the dust and he breathes into it. So very, in the very beginning, in Genesis 2, we see this reality that humans are bodies and souls. It's not that we have a soul and we are a body, or that we have a um, soul, and, or that we have a body and we are a soul, rather that we are embodied unions. We are psychosomatic 
holes, that our body and our soul are both integral to what it means to be a person. And so these three categories, relationships, bodies, and souls, are all three vital for us as we think about what it means to grow as a person. Most of us tend to neglect two or one of those categories when we think about growing as people. We either neglect relationships and kind of default towards this individualistic vision of I can do it all by myself, like this little train that could version of what it means to be a follower of Jesus that's incomplete, that's insufficient, or even neglect the body and say what really matters is the soul, what really matters is getting out of earth rather than getting into earth, and that's misunderstanding creation and misunderstanding Christmas, the fact that God took on a body, or we dismiss the soul piece. We give an undue attention to things like physical discipline and, and, spirit, and financial discipline and relationships and neglect the cultivation of our souls as individuals. And so all three of these categories are really important. And so I want to kind of just put that out there and ask you this question at the start. Which of those three categories do you tend to neglect? Because being an image bearer requires that we give life and thoughtful intentionality and development to all three of those categories that you are a relator and a lover, that you are a body and you are a soul. And all three of these things really constitute what it means to flourish. That if you neglect one of those three things, you're not really living into all that God has for you as a created being. So kind of putting that aside, maybe you need to write down, stop neglecting my soul, stop neglecting relationships, stop neglecting my body. But going into what it means to grow and to learn, a lot of us, if you grew up in a church context like I did, my understanding of what it meant to grow and what it meant to learn was extremely information-oriented. And this actually comes from a Greek or a Western worldview. So to know something, to really grow, what does it mean to know God? In this Greek conception, knowledge is essentially information. It's having the right propositions. And so what that means is that if I'm going to grow, it's assuming that my default problem is that I lack information. And so in this Greek view, if I'm going to grow in 2018, if I'm going to grow in knowledge of God, if I'm going to grow in knowledge of self, if I'm going to grow in what it means to be a flourishing human, my basic thing that I need to do is cultivate a discipline of information gathering. This Greek understanding says that we grow when we gain the proper information. And now that's a vital part of what it means to grow. But this assumes this view that we're kind of this morally neutral center and I just lack info. This is a temptation that I face all the time and pretty much constantly. I was a philosophy major. I like reading theology. I tend to say, hey, how is I growing? And I think about what am I reading? What am I studying? What's like the information that's new that's getting in my head? And this is a big deal. You don't wanna just be totally ignorant of things, but this is actually narrow and an incomplete understanding of what a biblical view of knowledge is. And so a Hebrew view of knowledge, rather than just being impersonal, disembodied information, in Hebrew understanding that we actually grow and grow in knowledge when we have an embodied understanding. When it gets into my gut, into my bones when it's not just my head, but it's my hands and my heart that get it as well. That I don't really know something biblically until it's in my gut, it's in my hands, it's in my heart, and not just in my head. This journey of getting ideas into my body is a very holistic process. I can't just read a book and then be transformed. So a lot of times what we see and we look at is this Old Testament view of knowledge. So here's Job 28, 28, it says this. To turn away from evil is understanding or knowledge. So if you think that you know God, 
If you think that you have an understanding of who God is, if you think that you're gonna grow in your understanding and knowledge of who God is, in the Old Testament sense of the word knowledge, that knowledge will translate to a transformed life. It will translate to you turning away from evil. I generally grew up thinking that when I got more information, I grew. Rather, the Old Testament biblical view of growth is that when I repent more, I have more knowledge. It's a repentance-oriented, a life-oriented, a heart-and-hands-oriented understanding of knowledge. A great way of thinking about this is when I think about what it takes to learn an instrument. Now, I know like one chord on the piano, and it's a C, and for those of you who know what that means, it's nothing. It's like there's three, three things you hit at the same time. And other than that, I haven't really touched much ivory. You know, I'm not a piano player, what the, whatever the case is. But suppose that over the last four years, I said, you know what? I've been reading a lot of books on how to play the piano. And I read a book every single week on how to play the piano. I learn all the musical theory. I memorize all the stuff from the books. And then I, for the first time, after having never touched a piano, sit down at the piano and I go, do I know how to play the piano? I have no idea how to play the piano. Even if I learned all the stuff in my mind, I haven't yet got it into my body, I haven't yet got it into my fingers, I haven't yet got it into my experience. That learning the piano takes practice, recitation, repetition, and doing it and doing it and failing and doing it and doing it and failing. Similar with riding a bike. If I wrote a book on how to ride a bike and gave it to your four-year-old, they're not gonna be able to read it and learn how to ride a bike. It takes getting on and failing, it takes getting on and falling left, falling right, getting back up, scraping your knees. That whole process of acquiring balance, you can't read a book and know how to ride a bike. Just like you can't read a book and know how to play piano. Similarly, biblically speaking, you can't read a book and say you know God. There's a daily practiced lived out, embodied, in my flesh, in my bones, in my fingers, experience to following after God. That this is the way that people know and they function. This happens to me fairly often, especially when I went to seminary, to meet all these people who knew all this abstract stuff about God, all the Latin, French, German, blah, 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 but when you met them, they didn't feel loving. When you met them, they felt harsh. There's like a coldness an abstractness, a judgmentalism. I pray that I'm not like that every single day because I tend to read stuff, I like knowing stuff, but really if my theological study, if the information that I get in reading scripture doesn't translate into me being a more loving, relating, embodied person, it does not matter. This is knowledge that puffs up according to Ecclesiastes. And I don't wanna be a person who knows a bunch of stuff but doesn't feel Christ-like to people. This is a big piece of what it looks like for us to discern whether someone can be a leader here at this church is how do they feel when you talk to them? It's 100% subjective because it's 100% relational. But that's a vital piece, that we are relating, loving, embodied people, not just brains on a stick with the right information. And so according to that, if I wanna grow in the knowledge of God, if to say someone that really knows God, it is way more than, not way less than, that they just have the right doctrinal components. That being able to memorize and recite creeds and confessions and reading a bunch of theology has potentially nothing to do with where you're actually following and living out Jesus.
If you grew up in a church like I grew up, and I'm not judging that church, but I'm saying we studied the Bible, we read the Bible, we read it every morning, but it was all about just getting the right information. At least that's how I experienced it. It was who's in, who's out, who's left, who's right, cerebral. It wasn't prayerful. It wasn't with the goal of love. It was the goal of information. And in 2018, I hope that we as a people don't fall into that trap of just gathering more information rather than being moved into a deeper, more loving, more humble, more experiential thing. What do people feel when they experience you? That's a question that humbles me. What do people, how do people experience you? How do people experience Seth? Do they walk away with the sense that this guy is cloaked in the spirit of Christ, love, joy, peace, peace patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control? Or do they walk away going, wow, it seemed like the whole time he's trying to see how much more he knew than me. <laughs> what do people experience when they experience you? So, one error we could make on this is to say that knowledge doesn't matter, and that's false as well. Jen Wilkin, one of the things she said, which I really appreciate, is that you can't love with the heart what you don't know with the mind. So again, this formative, heart-centered, love-oriented, relationally-bound vision of what it means to grow is not different than understanding things in the mind. It's more than that. If, if knowledge is here, working that into our body is the goal. So I'm not saying stop reading books, stop learning, stop reading. I'm saying you have to take your knowledge of Scripture and prayerfully work it into your chest and work it out in your heart and into your hands. But the problem is this, is that if you think that the way that you grow primarily is by getting more information, that means that you have a deficient view of the sinfulness of humanity. I'll say that again. If you think that the primary thing you need is education then you have a deficient view of the sinfulness of humanity. The Bible does not teach that we are ignorant, therefore we sin. Rather, the Bible teaches that our hearts are disordered and we love the wrong things, therefore we sin. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? If our heart is disordered and sick, we don't just need information, we need new hearts, we need reformation. Similarly, John 3 says this, this is the judgment, light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Augustine talked about this, saying that the default problem of humanity was that our loves are disordered. We love the wrong things. Not that we're just ignorant and dumb, that might also be true, but that's not the default problem. We love the wrong things. Are you aware of some of the things that you love that you really wish you didn't love? I noticed that I check my social media accounts probably 50 times more often in the hour and a half after I post something. Because I love when people like my stuff. I love it. I want to see how many did it. And if only like four people liked it, then I'll delete it and repost it at a more um, strategic time. You know what? 2 p.m. was a bad move. When they get off work, I'll post it at 6.30. That, that I love that, and I wish I didn't love that. 
I wish I didn't love that. I love when people find me impressive. I wish I didn't love that. I love when people give more weight to my opinion than when they give weight, give weight to other people's opinion. I wish I didn't love that. What do you love that you wish you didn't love? Do you love looking in the mirror? Do you love feeling superior to other people? Do you love gazing in your bank account? Do you love... What is that? What do you love? What are the things that you love that you wish you didn't love? The question that I have is therefore, well then how do I stop loving those things? What am I supposed to do? I can't just decide to not love things. You know, the philosopher Selena Gomez said the heart loves what it loves, you know? That's how it goes. So how do I change my loves? What do I do? How do I go about this? Um, Trish Warren wrote this book called um, Liturgy of the Ordinary. It's really good. If you don't have a book to read, get it. If you already have like five books you should be reading, don't get it. So here's what she says. In college, I liked ramen noodles. The main reason I liked them, besides the fact that they were awesomely terrible and cheap, was because we didn't have a kitchen in our dorm room. But my sweet mate, Jen, had a camp stove and we had a sink, so by the magic of Maruchin ramen, we could make lunch in our dorm room. We got into the routine of doing this together almost daily, sitting on Jen's futon, eating our instant ramen. There was hardly any nourishment in it besides the good conversation with Jen, but it left us feeling full enough and we didn't have to slog across campus. Plus, once you start eating ramen, it's hard to stop. It's addictive. Habits shape our desires. Sit on that. Habits shape our desires. I desired ramen noodles more than good nourishing food because over time, I had taught myself to crave taught myself to crave certain things and not others. In the same way, I'm either formed by the practices of the church into a worshiper who can receive all of life as a gift, or I'm formed inevitably as a mere consumer. These habits that shape our desires. You loving what you love has everything to do with what you gaze into and what you look at. What you take into yourself controls what you want to take into yourself. We're made as image bearers, designed by God to gaze into his beauty and reflect that beauty to the world. Designed by God to image his perfect righteousness and love and glory and character, perfect good, perfect truth, perfect beauty, and to image that out. We're, he built that into us. The, psych, like the psychological phenomenon is called mirror neurons. We're meant to become what we behold. What we gaze into, we eventually become. What we stare at gets into our body and changes what we are. If you stare at bodies all day, you'll desire to stare at bodies all night. If you look in the mirror all the time, you'll desire to keep looking in the mirror all the time. If you eat ramen noodles all the time, you want to keep eating ramen noodles all the time. Our habits shape us. We form our habits and then our habits keep forming us from there on and thereafter. That these desires come from our, our regularly experienced experiences. And so this is what Psalm 1 is actually talking about. You were saying about time he got to Psalm 1. Um, this is talking about what are these daily habits and routines that form us into certain types of people? What are these things that shape us into being people? What's going to affect what Seth feels like in 10 years? When people experience Seth, what are they going to experience? When people experience you, what are they going to experience? This is what Psalm 1 tells us. Psalm 1, 1 says this, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
or my own personal contemporary, not translation, but paraphrase. Blessed is the person who isn't counseled by selfish, ignorant fools, doesn't unthinkingly gaze at celebrities, nor has a heart shaped by pundits. I had a friend. He's not really a friend. He's kind of a friend. Um, he's more a guy I discipled, and it failed. So there you go. He texted me, hey, I'm going to do this thing. What do you think I should do? And I said, that's not only just absolutely stupid, but probably sinful. You should not do that. And he says, well, I talked to all my most discerning friends, and they think I should do it. I said, well, you know, when you surround yourself with stupid people, that's the advice you get. You know, that's all your friends being stupid and ignorant is not my problem. It's your problem, you know. And so you're going to get counseled by selfish, ignorant fools when you surround yourself with selfish, ignorant fools. Now, Psalm 1-1 doesn't say never spend time with these people. Jesus spent time with them all the time. Jesus spent time with me, and I'm one of them. But the point is receiving counsel from foolishness. That second line there, doesn't unthinkingly gaze at celebrities. Now, here's what I mean by celebrity. I don't necessarily mean Kim Kardashian or Sean Hannity, but what I mostly mean is the person you look at and stare into who you think I want to think like this person. I want to feel like this person. I want people to look at me the way people look at this person. Might be Dave Ramsey. Might be that one mommy blogger you really like. It might be that person up the street. It might be fill in the blank. But it's this person that we celebritize. And we really dehumanize them because we don't look at their faults. We just worship them and go, oh, if only I was like, if only it was like, if only people looked at me like people looked at them. I just wish I had 10 million Instagram followers. This unthinkingly gazing into celebrities, well, we, we become what we behold. And if you stare at them, you will want to become like them. And then over time, you will become like them. And then last one, nor has a heart shaped by pundits. You could also say heart shaped by technolo- technological devices. You've got to recognize that the people who invented Facebook aren't interested in forming Christ-likeness into you. Hopefully you know that. If you didn't, now you do. Their desire is to keep you scrolling and keep you clicking so that they can make money. That's what they really want. They don't have, want anything for you. They want something from you, and it's clicks and mindless engagement. Similarly, the people on the 24-7 news channels do not desire to see Christ formed in you. They desire to keep you watching because when you keep watching, then they can keep selling ads. They're not there to form your heart into Christ-likeness. They're there to keep you clicking and watching. So what we kind of see here is this cycle that's given us in Psalm 1-1. There's kind of this phase where we sit with and take in. And so most of us go about our daily lives mindlessly and passively just taking things in. Just seeing ads, internalize it. Seeing ads, internalize it. Seeing people cast an alternative vision for the good life, internalize it. Seeing people on Facebook, we scroll, we scroll, we scroll, and we just mindlessly take things in. We don't really notice God. We don't really attend to God. We don't really notice ourselves. We just take in things. Next episode, next episode, next app. I refresh Instagram, nothing new. Refresh again, refresh again, refresh again until something new pops up, and we're just taking in mindlessly. That's most of our default mode. And when that happens, we are mindlessly formed in 
to the spirit of the age. By the spirit of the age, I mean the attitude, morality, and ethos of what it means to be a human in the West. That this worship of self, this narcissistic culture, this view of the self as the sovereign individual, that we are swept up into a way of viewing humanity and viewing God. We might keep God, but only as an accessory for self-branding. We really have no desire to follow his lordship because really I am the sovereign self and I, expressing myself, is the centerpiece. And so what happens is we mindlessly and passively consume media and messages and we are then shaped in receiving the spirit of the age. We end up dehumanizing slowly and wanting to be like them in our default mode of what it means to be a successful person is not shaped by Christ, but it's ultimately shaped by the people who succeed according to popular Western culture. This is the path that you are constantly on. If you're not on purpose, not walking in this way, you are at risk for being 100% mindlessly formed into this way. The messages you receive, the structures of our society, the way in which our world is forming you, there is an agenda for you to be formed into a good, complicit consumer in Western culture, not critical, not thinking, and not shaped by the Spirit of God, rather shaped by the Spirit of the age. This mindless consumption of media and message and ads is a huge problem in our heart. And this is essentially what I think a contemporary understanding of Psalm 1 once talking about. Just hanging around with these people and now they're shaping you. One of uh, my favorite theologians, a guy named Michael Goheen, one of the ways that he resists this and asks his kids to resist this is whenever they're watching ads on TV, you know, the ad comes on, it's like, oh, like, they don't say this, but this is what they're saying. If you buy this product, your life could be better. And right now your life is bad, so buy this product. That's like this essential message of every single ad. And so after every ad, he let his kids watch TV, but after every ad, they're required to say, who do you think you're kidding at the TV? (laughs) Because these ads promise, they say, your savior has come, Apple AirPods, the thing you're missing. Do you lack romance? Have the iPods and you can dance like, like, but just saying, who do you think you're kidding is a way of combating that mindless consumption of these things. So Tish says this as well. The crucible of our formation is like the way that our hearts and souls get shaped. The crucible of our formation is in the anonymous monotony of our daily routines. These habits and practices shape our loves, our desires, and ultimately who we are and what we worship, regardless of professed worldview or particular Christian subculture, unexamined daily habits shape us. Period. Tragedy. So you think, you could, in the morning, serve your wife by making the bed, prayerfully saying, God, help me see myself as a servant today. Going to scripture, saying, Father, help me recognize myself as created, as valuable, as loved. Help me sense your spirit today. Help me, help me get in touch with reality, which your Bible reveals. You could start your day doing that, or you could start your day doing this. Who liked my stuff? Who's Selena do I'm as gating? celebrity gossip, what are my friends into? And we ask ourselves, how come we're all such narcissists at heart? Because we spend 
most of our day going, what do people like about me? What are people saying about me? Tell us what you're thinking. Selfie, selfie, selfie. And there's like, we think that that's not going to create narcissism within us. These daily routines, unexamined, shape you and form you, and there's a lot at stake. So what's the opposite? How do we get to Psalm 2, the opposite thing we go in right here? So Jamie Smith says this, we learn to love not primarily by acquiring information about what we should love, but rather through practices that form the habits of how we love. So you're not going to be reasoned out of your self-worship. You're not going to be reasoned out of your narcissism. Rather, through practices that form the habits of how we love. You are a creature of habit whose loves have been deformed by disordered secular liturgies. Thus, the best gift God could give you is spirit-infused practices that will reform and retrain your loves. Spirit-infused practices that reform and retrain our loves are the way in which we mature and develop into the people of faith that we want to be. This is what James K. Smith is talking about here is what Paul says in Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. This is not saying earn your salvation. This is saying you must work out of your salvation, work from your salvation, and God is simultaneously working in you. This tension of divine sovereignty and human responsibility meets at the road of your basic spiritual disciplines. Work it out for God's working in you. This is not you earning God's favor. This is you participating in the spirit of God, giving you a new heart, a new mind, a new soul, being transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you can walk in a way that actually honors and helps um, the kingdom of God. So this is what Psalm 2 is about. So rather than being the person who meditates on um, the things of the world, we're gonna be a person who delights in the law of the Lord. And law there means instruction or teaching. Not necessarily this abstract principles for how you ought to live, but rather the voice of God instructing and leading his people towards faithfulness. And on his law, he meditates, think about my terrifying dog, just playfully um, chewing on day and night. So conversely, we have this pattern. Mindfulness and prayer. And by mindfulness, I mean noticing that you are under attack through the, the spirit of the age constantly. And prayer, I mean this meditation, this recitation, this sitting with God's word. I don't mean just saying things to God, but I mean meditating on the words of God, noticing God's presence. And then from there, we receive the spirit of Christ. We meditate on the words of God. We receive the spirit of Christ and that leads us towards Jesus which ultimately produces a Christ-likeness within us. So we see these two different ways of being, these two different formation engines going at all times. That essentially at any moment during the day, you are being formed into the spirit of the age or being formed into the spirit of Christ. You're either mindlessly being swept up, tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine of the garbage that's all around you, or you're mindfully, prayerfully engaging the world around you. This is not a matter of getting out of the world, but a matter of rightly living into the world. Do you see the fact that you are really living in one of these two circles at any moment during the day? Do you sense that? Because that's my primary hope when you walk out of here today, is that Monday morning at 11, 13 a.m., whatever it is, you notice and you go, wait a minute. Am I mindlessly being swept up in the spirit of the age? Or am I prayerfully loving the people around me? Am I prayerfully engaging God's creation? Because it's 
minute by minute, probably one or the other. So then what do we actually do? Psalm 1, verse 3. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. I think one of the problems we have in our spiritual formation, our spiritual growth, is that we just have the wrong metaphors. And a huge piece of what we get here in Psalm 1-3 is showing us that growing in faith is not a matter of getting out of the world or escaping the world, but it's a matter of with biblical imagination and prayerfulness living into the world rightly. One of my biggest pet peeves is when we go to things like camps or service and when preachers will say things like, now when you leave this room and you go back to reality, I hate that because this is reality. Being centered on God's word, gathered with the people. That's the perversion of reality out there. This is real. We look at Psalm 1-3 and see the tree and we think, how can I think about my spiritual growth? And so meditating on the law of the Lord day and night. I've been doing this this last two weeks. I've been meditating on Psalm 1-3 like a tree and I wanna share with you some of those meditations and hopefully they will encourage you in your own spiritual growth. The tree is planted. It's an evidence of grace. Someone put that tree there. It didn't get there on its own. You think about that in Arizona. You ever see a big, nice, dark green tree? You go, that didn't get here on its own. Someone put that there. That's the same for you. The, the metaphor of spiritual formation is a tree that is planted, not just fell from its other tree, but someone put it there. So beginning a view of, of how I'm gonna grow spiritually begins from you assuming the prior work of grace of God in your life. That if you think I got to where I am on my own, you're misunderstanding Psalm 1-3. Rather, you should view yourself as this recipient of grace that God has gotten you where you are, that there's not an entitlement, but there's a gratitude that is the foundation of your growth. Soil, there's a place. It's not just nowhere, but it's, it's in the dirt, it's rooted. The roots have grown into a particular soil. There's nutrients in that soil. The place where that tree is really matters. People who bounce around this church six weeks, that church six weeks, this church six weeks, finding things wrong with each one of them tend to not grow. I remember talking to a marriage counselor who met a guy who was married five times for four years each. And he said he does not have 20 years of marriage experience. He has four years of marriage experience five times. That's similar. You can bounce around from place to place, but being rooted and planted in a local place is a vital piece of our growth. Next one is slowly. I checked with some of my botanist friends and ordinarily the slower a tree grows, the deeper the roots and the longer the tree lives. Think about that. The metaphor here is in a sunflower, boom, grew up a couple of weeks, boom, gone a couple of weeks. Oh, there's, a, there's a length here. Trees grow frustratingly slow. Does your view of how you're gonna grow as a follower of Jesus include that it probably will be frustratingly slow? Because that's the metaphor we get in Psalm 1-3. Light, daily light, trees need light. Jesus Christ is the light of the world. This tree every day has the sun shining on it so the photosynthesis thing 
happens. If you think that you're going to grow apart from daily light, that it's time in the scriptures, time in experiencing, encountering, and taking in God's word, then you're misunderstanding the tree thing. Environment, environment really matters. What actually makes this tree different than all the other trees is its environment. This tree is planted by streams of water. Other trees are not in that environment, so they don't flourish. Healthy churches really matter. Healthy small groups really matter. Healthy households really matter. This word-soaked, word-saturated environment, these places of love really cause us to grow. Um, Fruit. The tree isn't the one eating that fruit. Someone else is eating that fruit. One of the biggest motivators for me when I first kind of started to own my spiritual disciplines, when I first started to own the fact that I can be responsible for my spiritual growth was when I noticed that when I don't have fruit on my trees, other people around me go hungry. That a a legitimate motivator for I want to grow in my faith is so that I can bear fruit for other people. There's an outward focusedness to this view of growth, that I don't just want to grow into a big tree so that I have better self-esteem and God loves me more. That's not true. Both of those things aren't true. Rather, I want to grow so that I can shade and extend fruit to the people around me. Seasonal, different phases. There's busy seasons and less busy seasons. Sometimes the wind blows, sometimes the storms come, sometimes it's easy going. We should recognize that there's seasons in our spiritual growth non-withering, consistent, and secure. Even in the cold, there's a, con- there's a security, a consistency. It's not denying the storms of the seasons, rather, but there remains this internal consistency. The leaves don't wither. And then lastly, streams. There's multiple. Not dependent on one avenue for this word, but rather there's these multiple streams of water. So this is me just in a week really meditating and thinking through the images and metaphors in Psalm 1-3. And so here's kind of where I'm going to end it is this. What are your streams? What are the streams? If you want to be 2018 a year in which you grow into a person who ages like wine and not a person who ages like raisins, what are going to be those streams? And I just have three. They're pretty basic, but they're in this passage and they're helpful. First one, church. Weekly, the congregation of the righteous. Hebrews 10 says this, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. This regular weekly church attendance is not just about getting more information. I've kind of heard lately people saying things like, I go to church online. No, you don't. You might watch a church service online, but you're not partaking in a church online. This embodied, relational, you and I together, us in the room, shaking hands, greeting, singing one another in spiritual songs. From beginning to end, this whole thing is meant to form us into a people as we stir one another up unto good works. A lot of times people view the sermon as the centerpiece of the Sunday gathering, and that's not true. If you view the sermon as a centerpiece, like there's just pre-gaming the sermon with some music and entertainment, and then there's just post-gaming the sermon with dessert, with, I guess, some more music, but really the main piece is the preaching, then you have that Greek view of knowledge that your primary thing you need is information. But you need relationships, you need in the flesh, you need handshaking, you need hugs, you need communion, you need this whole environment is meant to shape us into a people. 
that if you stay home and watch a sermon, you watched a sermon, but you did not participate in the weekly gathering, that we come here to stir one another up to good works. I'm not here stirring you unto good works. We are here stirring one another up into good works. If you need another New Year's resolution, make it this weekly church attendance, showing up, being present. The average American who says, I'm a church attender, shows up to church on average of 1.7 times. I think that's tragic considering what we just talked about, the fact that the world is constantly trying to form you not into Christ but into something else. I remember in sixth grade um, telling my dad, Dad, I don't want to go to school today. And he said, that's fine. No one asked you if you wanted to go to school today. (laughs) You don't need to want to go. You just need to go. And if we only do exactly what we want to do, we will become narcissists in a deep-rooted sense. That part of the discipline nature of spiritual disciplines is committing to something and then when our feelings aren't there, doing it anyway because we're formed by our habits. Most of us, myself included, are in the habit of just doing what we feel like, which is not a good habit. Next one, word. Again, this says pretty basic. Daily, daily light. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. There's a daily thing going on here. Delight in the law of the Lord. Some of you go, that sounds nice, but I don't delight in God's law because I find it boring, and I just don't, I don't like it. When I was a freshman in college, um, all the people that I like, really respected and wanted to be like, the celebrities that I gazed at, Um, they all drank black coffee because, you know, um, drinking coffee with sugar in it was like less masculine or something. And so I wanted them to take me seriously. I wanted to be a cool guy who like goes to coffee shops and drinks black coffee and listens to bad poetry. Um, And so I started forcing myself to drink black coffee and it was awful and miserable. But over time, I eventually started to like it and now I actually like black coffee. That's what's called an acquired taste. Delighting in the law of the Lord might be an acquired taste for you because all day long you have these bright, beautiful images with nice red indicators reminding you, hey, check me, check me, check me. Big pictures, high definition. And then you're gonna go and have to sit with God in prayer and there's a patience that that requires. Some of you already delight in God's word, fantastic. But recognize that delighting in God's word might be you needing to acquire the taste. And that's fine. And if you are looking for a discipline of what that actually looks like, Luke Simmons, our lead pastor, actually just wrote a blog. It's on our website, Resources for Growth in 2018. Go check it out. Read it. It'll get you going. But you've got to get in the word. And lastly, prayer, hourly, this meditation. Noticing. I put hourly, but it should be minute by minute. Noticing throughout the day, am I being swept up into the spirit of the age or am I prayerfully asking and noticing and connecting with the spirit of God? Am I being formed into Christ-likeness bit by bit, one degree at a time? Or am I being formed into a materialist consumer narcissist being swept up in the spirit of age bit by bit by bit? Because one of those two are happening. And when you notice, thank God that you noticed and then pray and ask God to reveal himself to you that you can continue to grow in that. Let me pray. We can end our service. 
God, thank you for your word. Thank you for these metaphors. I just right now pray for all these people in this room who might want to engage these basic spiritual disciplines as a way of feeling better about themselves or as a way of getting you to like them. God, the only way that we grow in favor of you, the only way we've gained your favor is the death and resurrection of your son. I pray that any activity that we press into, prayer or Bible reading or church attendance, that it would not be a means of earning your favor, but a means of following you more closely. Let 2018 be a year in which we um, grow into these trees that bear our fruit in all seasons. Amen.